Father, that's our prayer this morning, that indeed we would be known as the disciples of your Son because of the way that we love one another. By the way, that love extends not just to words and affection, but by clear, demonstrable acts of love and commitment to one another. We pray, Father, that part of that love Part of that clear action of loving one another is how we listen and respond to your word. For Father, our spiritual growth does not just affect us. It is not just about our spiritual fruit production, but Father, our holiness, our growth affects the body. And so Father, we desire to know you more intimately, to reflect Christ more clearly, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of our brothers and sisters, that together with one voice, we might glorify you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, this morning we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, Father, that you would help us to grasp hold of your life-giving word, that you would open our eyes by your spirit, that we might hear it and understand it, believe it, and obey it. Father, this is our prayer this morning from the pulpit to the pew. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning. Two hundred and twenty-two years ago this past September, our first president gave his farewell address to the nation. It was considered, and is still considered today, a political miracle that a world leader would peacefully and voluntarily step down from office that another might fill it. Over his terms, George Washington, however, saw the move from individual men elected to political office to the rise of political parties with specific platform convictions. And as he exited the presidency, he uttered what only now could be considered prophetic words that warned against the dangers of such parties. He said that while they may seem like an easy solution to popular issues, they would invariably undermine our political system because rather than working for the good of the nation, politicians would work for the good of their party. This morning, I, or not this morning rather, but this past week, I acted as a good citizen and I voted, but I'm really glad that we're past the election season because I can hardly think of a better descriptor of American politics today than the prophetic words of George Washington. I saw little debate among candidates, but lots of rancor. Not much discussion, but lots of name-calling and accusing. Not much seeking the welfare of the nation or even the cities over which people will serve, but rather political parties. In this country now, at least in terms of politics, we seem to be split almost in two with very little room in the middle. And those that find themselves in the middle feel can easily feel like they are in no man's land with people in the trenches on the right and the left taking shots at them because they don't agree with them. It's a sad sight, but even sadder when such could be a description of a local church. 
Perhaps it's been your experience to be in a church where there was some issue that became a lightning rod that divided groups. Perhaps those that were for this issue or against this issue, and maybe those in the middle with feeling the heat from both sides that they needed to take a stand when really that issue probably was certainly not worth fighting about. Definitely not worth being hateful towards other Christians about. Too many times churches have allowed themselves to become fractured and splintered and their testimony in their neighborhood, in their city, sometimes in the nation, has been destroyed as they descend into petty bickering and fighting, betraying the commonality of their faith in Christ, which goes deeper than any other issue they might faith. Yet it's a common trick of the enemy to undermine the church's blood-bought unity. In fact, we see almost from the very beginning the church's life and health threatened by the temptation to be factious and to live in disharmony. And so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and we're going to see just how easily the unity of the church can be attacked and put in danger, but we're also going to see how God's leaders sought to lead the church to take action to preserve and pursue spiritual unity. We are returning to a long-term series by going to Acts chapter 6, and we just need to remember where we're at in the story so far. Christ has died for sins. He has risen from the dead. He has now ascended to the Father's right hand where he rules and reigns over all things and continues to spread his kingdom through the work of his disciples in the church on earth. He has poured out his spirit so that all of God's people are now fully filled with that spirit, are empowered for gospel growth, and that exactly that is exactly what they do. They continually preach the good news of Jesus, more disciples are saved, and now they are loving one another and ministering together and to one another. And this is where Luke picks up the narrative and where we're going to pick up this morning. So follow along as I begin reading Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy, excuse me, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. May God bless the reading of his word. The passage before us describes how the church responded to a threat towards its health and unity. More than that, it sets an example for us in how we ought to think through responding when our unity as Providence Bible Fellowship is threatened. 
So how can we together pursue spiritual unity so that we might experience, like the early church, gospel blessings? Namely, the increasing of the word, the multiplication of disciples, even to the most hardened sinners. That's how I'm defining gospel blessings here, according to verse 7. How do we do that? Well, at least three things. First, we need to identify threats that endanger unity. We need to identify threats that endanger our unity. Verse 1 says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, at this moment, many were hearing the gospel and believing. Disciples were being made. The church was growing. It was a time of spiritual prosperity. It's the kind of time that we love to hear about in the past and see today. But it was also something that Satan doesn't like. From the beginning, the seed of the woman has battled against the seed of the serpent, culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the the ultimate victory over the seed. And yet, even as Satan knows he is defeated, he is enraged against Christ and his kingdom. And so what we see here in the early chapters is first an attempt at external pressure Let's threaten the apostles to stop preaching, that the church might stop growing. That didn't work. So now, now Satan is trying to thwart the progress of Christ's kingdom by internal dissension. Verse 1 says, a complaint went up from one section of the church to the apostles against another. It's the same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the grumbling and the murmuring of the Israelites against Moses and Exodus and in Numbers. We can easily imagine the enemy's thinking here in his scheming. This worked so well before, why not try it again? Think about all of the difficulty, all of the problems, all of the sin that grew out of the murmuring of Old Testament Israel. Notice how this complaint endangered the unity of the church by running along two sociological fault lines. First, this complaint involved cultural differences. Cultural differences. Notice two groups are mentioned in the passage. First, there are the Hellenists. These would have been Jews that would have been dispersed throughout the surrounding regions and then returned to settle in Palestine. Though ethnically Jewish, they would have also spoken Greek and had much more in common with Greek culture than Jewish culture. They would have fought and lived like Greeks. Second, though, there are The Hebrews, these were Jews native to the land of Palestine. They would have mainly spoken Hebrew and Aramaic, and they would have followed closely both the law and the traditions and customs of the Jewish culture. Now, right from the bat, these two groups are going to have a hard time getting together. They have a common ethnic identity, but culturally, they are very, very different. Even today, cultural differences can be a means of division. It's much easier to associate with people who look like you, who talk like you, who live like you, who eat and listen to music and dress like you. The world would actually emphasize these things to try to put us into categories and to exacerbate our awareness of our differences over and against the far more common elements we have as human beings made in the image of God. Very often I annoy my kids because while I am in public, walking around the store or the amusement park or wherever it is, if someone makes eye contact with me, I smile and say, hi, how are you today? And keep walking. 
And invariably, one of my kids will say, do you know that guy? Do you know that girl? I'm like, no, I, I don't know them at all. They're complete strangers. Why would you talk to them? And they'll tell you my response is, they're a human being made in the image of God. Why would I not say hi to them? It's just common courtesy, right? But it's, an, it's embarrassing to them, right? Well, very often the world is pressuring us and molding us and trying to say, no, 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 you can't like that person. They don't have the same skin color as you. They don't listen to the same kind of music as you. They don't speak the same kind of language as you. You should hate them and not have anything want to do with them. And we would just stop and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you prick us, do we not bleed red? Right? Are, are we not fashioned into the image of God? It doesn't matter where what our genes say. Ultimately, we go back to two parents, Adam and Eve. How can we not love one another and desire to be together, especially in the church? Naturally speaking, these two groups, the Hellens and the Hebrews, would, would, would have had a difficult time getting together, but they have the Spirit of God to help overcome these differences. And yet now there is this issue that is seeking to make them aware of the differences to forget about their common faith and therefore to drive them apart. The Hellenists believe they are being treated like second-class citizens in Christ's kingdom. And this was especially hurtful because this distinction, this oversight was aimed at those with economic needs. This is the, the second kind of fault line that we see here. Not just cultural differences, but economic Needs. Verse 1 again, the complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We've heard before how in the ancient world, widows were often the most vulnerable people in society. They usually lacked resources or the means of income and reliant on the generosity of family and friends. And that, that may seem normal to us today, but just we need to, we need to put ourselves back into that first century mindset. One of the most amazing things that we have preserved from history is not the, the, the great works of Western philosophy, but the everyday mail, the, the everyday trash that people wrote out receipts on and everything else that have somehow, through God's providence, been preserved for us to read. And there's one by a Roman politician who's writing to his wife, this just casual bit of business, just the kind of stuff that you would talk about with your spouse on the phone. And then he casually says about the life that has grown inside his wife's womb. Oh, and by the way, if the baby's born while I'm, a, while I'm away and it's a girl, just throw it away. That's the kind of cultural mindset we have in the first century. We have that today as well in some ways. But just because a widow had family doesn't mean that family would take care of that widow. They, they are a drain on society. They have no political clout. Helping them is not going to do me any good. I'm not going to get anything back from them, so let's just let them be. They can fend for themselves, and if die, so be it. But that's not what the church did, is it? We have here the daily distribution. And if you remember back to what we saw in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, such was the love and generosity of God's people for one another, that if we had extra, we would take it and we would lay it at the apostles' feet and they would daily distribute to those that were in need so that no one had any needs. Everyone went to bed with their daily bread among God's people in the first century. They follow the example of the Old Testament and God's instructions that widows and orphans were to be cared for. So now, though, something looks like it's not happening that way. We don't know if it's actually true or if it just appeared to be true. 
We don't even know why it would have happened if it was true. What we know is the Hellenists believed their widows were being overlooked in this distribution of food, and it threatened the unity of God's people. One one group says, hey, you know, these widows aren't getting the food they're supposed to. At least I don't seem to be getting the food they're supposed to. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The widows are just from our ethnic group. They're just among us, the Hellenists. Now we've got a problem. Why are the Hebrews looking down upon us? Is it because, because we don't speak Hebrews? Because we don't keep the traditions and the customs that they've been raised with? Are we not good enough? And today, the solution may have been a church split. Well, you guys like this kind of music, and you have this kind of cultural background. You guys like to raise your hands in worship, and, 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 and we don't. So let's just split. Let's just have our own church. The first Hellenist church at Jerusalem and the original Pentecost Hebrew church over here at Jerusalem. But of course, we know the apostles were not happy with that. They were not content to see the church so divided. They sought what Jesus himself desires even today. A church that is not broken or splintered or cut up with cliques and divisions and groups who only serve themselves their own interests. He desires a church that is unified in love and gospel faith. Christ calls for the church to be marked by love for one another, that embraces diversity and cares for those that are in need. And in order to be that kind of church, in order to be unified in that way, we can't just passively sit back and hope that it happens. We have to work for it. And one of the ways that we have to work for it is wisely identify and be on guard against specific situations that would divide us and endanger our unity today. It might be the very things in this passage. It might be something different. There's an entire list of things that might threaten us. Homeschool versus private school versus public school. That's a big one in evangelical reform circles today. So much so that churches begin to divide over that and start their own churches What a silly thing to divide over. So we must, we must prayerfully, wisely identify those issues and things that would threaten our unity. But, but secondly, the church in every age, just like the church here, should seek leaders that encourage unity. We must seek leaders that encourage unity. How did the apostles seek to maintain unity among the church? First, they knew that they must serve with the right priorities. They must serve with the right priorities. Look at verse 2. Hearing this complaint, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles saw the kind of powder keg, powder keg nature of this issue, of this complaint, the severity of what was happening, but they also knew the priorities of their calling. The temptation would have been to say, we got to be more focused on this daily distribution. we got to be more aware of what's happening. We need to be checking in all the time with these widows. But they said, we, we can't do that. We can't do that. We have a clear priority and mandate from God. Our ministry is to preach and teach the word and to pray for God's people. So what are we going to do? Well, that, that priority, remember at this point, the apostles are serving as pastors, and therefore they set the pattern for the non-apostolic pastors that have come after them all the way up to today. What they did was say, we must hold on to this priority of the ministry of prayer and the word of God. 
Before anything else, God's people must have spiritual shepherds. They need pastoral care. Whenever we read through the Old Testament prophets, one of the strongest things of condemnation you see is God's displeasure with the leaders of Israel. They failed to shepherd his people. They failed to teach his law. They failed to warn them against sin and idolatry. This just week, we saw something similar as headlines shot across the internet. When a so-called pastor told her congregants, God doesn't care. It's not sinful if you look at pornography, as long as it is, quote, ethically sourced, end quote. Here is a person who so distorts God's word that what he calls right, she calls wrong. What he condemns as wicked, she exalts as amoral at best, if not righteous. The, the threat still exists. It existed in Jesus' day as well. Even after the exile, Jesus shows up and what does he say? He is burdened for the people because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are wandering aimlessly, not being fed, not being well taken care of. No one is pointing them to faith in God. And so he came, he says, as the good shepherd. He came and he gave his people the words of life and directed them to put their hope in their heavenly father. Moreover, Jesus so loves his people that as the good shepherd, he laid down his life for his sheep. Though we like sheep have all gone astray into a terrible thicket of sin, find ourselves caught up and trapped, unable to escape, eventually going to die there, Jesus comes and rescues us. He himself enters into that thicket, willingly allowing himself to be bruised and cut, even dying to shed his precious blood for the salvation of his sheep. As God's son in the flesh, Jesus came into this world and was the only person, the only shepherd to ever fully and perfectly live out his father's will. He was righteous before God. He delighted to obey him. We are the opposite. We are born with corrupted hearts that continually want to sin unless God steps in and intervenes. Like a bright, shiny apple that looks so good and so juicy and you so much want to bite into. Nevertheless, a worm has found its way there. So it's rotting from the inside out. So are we born with corrupted hearts that eventually give rise to sinful behavior. And the only thing that awaits us is death and judgment. Yet Christ loved us. And bore that judgment on our behalf on the cross. So that when we turn away from our rebellion against God. And desire to live by faith in Christ. We can be forgiven. We can be given new life that desires righteousness and not sin. And experience eternal fellowship with God the Father and his Son. Rather than the eternal condemnation that we deserve. Such was Christ as the shepherd of his people. Perhaps you're here this morning and Christ is not your shepherd. You have not come to grips with your reality as a sinner deserving of God's judgment and turn towards faith in Christ away from that rebellion. This morning I implore you, look to Jesus and put your trust in him. Allow him to be the shepherd of your soul that you might find forgiveness and life. For those of us who have believed, is it any mystery that God longs for there to continually be faithful shepherds over his people? To rightly preach his word and intercede for them? Yet the apostles 
at the same time did not despise the needs that were before them. They didn't say, oh, geez, these widows, my goodness, it takes so much time. I don't care about these things. No, 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 that wasn't their response. Their response was not, yeah, well, it's it's somebody else's problem. No, 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 no. They said, listen, we have clear priorities to faithfully shepherd God's people, but this is a crucial need. So what do they do? It is so important they develop an entire leadership team to oversee it. Verse 4 has the word ministry, but it's the same word as verse 2 when it speaks of these men serving tables. The point is, all leaders are called to serve God's people. The question is simply, how are they going to serve? Eventually, this group would be formalized into the office of the church that we now call deacons. And that word deacon has at its root this word for serve. It is so strongly connected with the idea of meeting physical needs that even here it's translated as serving tables. But is that all deacons do? Are deacons merely there to ensure the daily distribution or whatever the functional equivalent uh, is today? No. No, that that is a means to an end. Remember the context in which these men were called. It is preserving the unity of the church. The apostles are not just saying, well, someone needs to make sure the widows get their food. What they're saying is, someone needs to make sure the widows are cared for so the church doesn't split apart. We need people that are there to serve in ways that encourage unity among God's flock. They are there to free up the pastors to preach and pray as they oversee the needs of the congregation, heading off problems, bringing spiritual encouragement, and promoting the unity of God's people. That's the the essence of the deacon's call. This is why the apostles not only rightly emphasized their priorities, but they also made sure that diaconal leaders would serve with the right qualifications. They would serve with the right qualifications. Notice the 12 said, Brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Later, Paul would give an extended list of qualifications for the formal office of deacon, but notice the nature of the qualifications for these proto-deacons. These men would be of good repute. They are well known as godly men in the church. There's never going to be a question about their motivations or or why they're doing something. It's not like they're kind of shady guys. I don't know. I don't know why they're doing this. I don't know. These, These men have good reputations. They were also to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. Some people take that to be two different things, full of the spirit and of wisdom, that that could be true. It's kind of a 50-50 thing. I, I tend to think it means that, that being filled with the spirit, a particular manifestation of that filling is the wisdom in which they have, the spiritual wisdom and the practical wisdom by which they live. These are exactly the kind of men, either way how you slice that, these are exactly the kind of men that are needed for this particular ministry. You have complex relationships and situations, and you need, you need wise decision-making people who are godly and have reputations for being godly so that the congregation can trust them in these matters. Now, does that mean that deacons are always only those who serve in practical and administrative ways? Not at all. In fact, over the next two chapters, we're going to see two of these men uh, are great evangelists and Bible teachers and had display a deep knowledge of God's word. The qualifications for deacons are not meant to limit ministry, but to ensure that diaconal ministry is filled by those who will do it well. It, it, it's not just a, oh, you were faithful to do one thing, so we're going to throw you over here and do this. There might be godly men, and they, they would not be qualified to be deacons, right? 
they, they do not have that kind of practical administrative wisdom that is required for this. They, they may not interact well with people. So we would just say, that's not your gifting. Let's find something else for you to do. That being said, those that are qualified are not limited to only doing these basic diaconal things. It should also be said by what we see here as well as in 1 Timothy 3 that deacons are not given the same authority or responsibility as pastors. Through pastors and deacons, God has ordained two offices of leadership. Both serve the church, again, but in different ways. Pastors exercise spiritual authority and leadership. How? By teaching and preaching and by counseling God's word. They are tasked with overseeing the spiritual health of Christ's sheep, discipling the flock, setting an example of godliness and faithfulness, and laboring in prayer over them. Deacons do not have the same kind of spiritual authority. It's the reason why in the list in 1 Timothy 3, able to teach is not there among the qualifications. You don't have to be able to teach God's word because you're not, you do not have a position of spiritual authority among God's people. Deacons instead lead by doing good and caring for the family of God. They serve by believers by ensuring physical needs are met, and they take up these duties so that pastors can give themselves more fully to the ministry of their calling. Deacon's service could be seen in something as simple as helping someone get groceries for the week, or as far-ranging and complex as finding themselves, or having someone, finding someone else who will be able to help with car rides, job searches, home repairs, overseeing the offerings, preparing for church-wide events, and so many other things. In all of this, they help encourage unity among the body. So in the church, what we don't have is two houses of Congress. You have the pastoral team, and you have the deacon team, and they're somehow battling for authority and recognition. Some churches have that, but that's not what we have here. That's what no church should ever have in their midst, because that's not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says, we don't have Congress and lobbyists. We have a king. We have a king named Jesus, and he has given gifts of leadership to his church that serve in distinct but complementary ways so that his people will be well cared for and unified. What about those in the church that are not pastors, that are not deacons? What role do you have to play in the unity of the body? Well, this is the last thing that we see as we are seeking to pursue spiritual unity together. We see that we not only need to identify threats that would endanger our unity, we not only need to seek leaders that would encourage unity, but we need to live as a congregation that embraces unity. We need to live as a congregation that embraces unity. Pastors can teach, deacons can serve, but how will the church, how will you respond to that ministry? That's the question. Because ultimately, the pastors and the deacons can be doing exactly what they're supposed to do, but if the congregation as a whole does not respond appropriately, the church can still fall into disunity. Notice who it is that identifies and affirms the Magnificent Seven seen here in this passage. It's not the apostles, it's the church. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Who's picking them out? The church is picking them out. Verse 5, what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose these men. 
Then, verse 6, they set before these, they set before the apostles these men, who then prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, the apostles had the authority, didn't they? To say, we want uh, you, 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 and you. These seven guys, get up here. This is your task. That's not what they did, did they? Why do they not do that? Because the apostles know, even though they themselves have the full earthly authority of Jesus Christ, Christ has given final earthly authority to the church as a whole. Where do we see this? We see this in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. The church is given the final say in matters of church discipline. They decide who is in and who is not in as a credible believer and thus a member of the local church. In Galatians 1 and in Acts 15, they are given final doctrinal authority. Paul appeals to the church, the believers in Galatia, and says, listen, if even me as an apostle preaches a false gospel, you should reject me. You should boot me out. You should consider me accursed by God on my way to hell and have nothing to do with me. He could have easily said, I'm the apostle here. Here's my authority. Here's what you should do. And yet the church as a whole is appealed to. And thus, the New Testament church has no earthly priest or pope, no denominational authority who holds sway over any local assembly. Only Christ himself has supreme authority over his people. Now, in your minds, you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does that gel with what we just said about pastors and what we know the Bible teaches about pastors? Don't they have spiritual authority over God's people? Yes, they do. And these two things go hand in hand. In the pastoral letters, pastors are charged to lead as elders and overseers, directing the spiritual life and ministries of the church. Moreover, in Hebrews 13, believers are told, submit to your leaders. Submit to your overseers, your elders, your pastors. So how do these two things work together? How can the church be the final authority, but also submit to the authority of the pastors? In the end, it comes down to one thing. Trust. Trust. Remember, pastors do not have intrinsic authority. They don't have intrinsic authority. None of us do. We have authority because we have been called by God to rightly handle his word. So if you ever see me up here in this capacity or at Sunday school or in a home fellowship group and I am poorly handling God's word, if I am twisting and distorting and, and making it mean something that it ought not mean, then these other brothers that serve alongside me will say, you have invalidated your call as an elder. You no longer have authority over this body and you remove, I will be removed from this office because there's nothing inherently intrinsically authoritative about me. It's me being called to handle the word well. And insofar as I do that, along with the other elders, we wield spiritual authority over your lives. And thus the congregation recognizes the calling of the elders from God in how they conduct themselves, both in their character and in their doctrine. Are they able to teach? Are they able to well divide the word? Then we affirm God has called them to this task and we trust them to oversee our spiritual lives. Consider how this works itself out practically. When the elders bring a candidate before the church for membership into the body or for discipline out of the body, we have met with and talked with and interviewed that person. We understand the situations that are involved and 
to the degree that you need to know information to make a decision, we share that before the body. But it is up to the body to trust that the elder's recommendation is good, that it is right, that it is biblical and God-honoring, and therefore affirm and agree this person should be in our midst as a member or this person should be booted out of our membership as a member because of their sin. Likewise, in our passage, the apostles serve as pastors and wisely see the need for individuals to take over the everyday responsibilities of the daily distribution for widows. So they give the church some basic guidelines, right? Here's what you should do. Pick seven men, men who uh, look like this. How do the congregation respond? They say, you know, I've never liked the number seven. I I think 10 would be a better number. And, you know, I'm not sure about that whole fill with the Spirit thing, you know. I mean, we're all in progress. We're all growing. Some people are filled with the Spirit more than others. So uh, how about guys with beards? They're the guys that should, we, we can trust them, uh, right? Come on, some bearded men better say amen to that one. Um, that, that's not what they do, do they? Here are their leaders who have faithfully preached the gospel to them from the Old Testament scriptures for months, even under pain of beating and imprisonment from the Jewish authorities. They have remained faithful in their character and given no reason to doubt that that they desire the good of the people and the glory of God. So the whole gathering hears this and says, we trust these apostolic leaders. We trust our pastors. Therefore, we will do what they say. Here's what I find absolutely astonishing, particularly given where we're at in our cultural situation with questioning authority and everything else. It's astonishing to me that at least one key of unity for God's people lands on church polity. Is the church well organized the way that God calls us to be organized in the Bible? If so, then we will have great gains at remaining unified as God's people. At the same time, loved ones, you can never sit back when it comes to a ministry decision, when it comes to activities and gatherings and ministry emphases and just say, well, that's that's for somebody else to do. That's somebody else's responsibility to vote. That somebody else can go and approve the budget. No friends, no loved ones. That's your responsibility. As the church, you bear the responsibility before God to follow the wise and godly leadership to embrace the servant leaders around you and the ministry that they have as deacons and to be the authority of this body in things like membership and budget. How are we going to, how are we going to spend the money that is given? How are we going to do that wisely and godly? The elders make recommendations, but you need to say, this is our responsibility. I need to be involved. I need to not sit on the sidelines, but I need to help lean in and embrace the leader's directions for unity and godliness. And what happens when we do all of that? Abundant gospel blessings. I love the end of the passage. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, those most hostile to the gospel of Christ, became obedient to the faith. Spurgeon once said that all Christians will never see eye to eye on everything any more than one would be able to set a dozen pocket watches to mark the exact same time down to the second. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, if believers would bend their will to the word of God and have no authority beyond that, then the church would never be divided. 
That's the thing that our text draws us to this morning. The church was unified in calling these seven men to the task of serving tables that the apostles might more fully devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. It was that focus on the word that allowed the word to increase and therefore to help bring unity to the church that it might flourish and grow. Therefore, if we are to follow in their footsteps, we must identify threats that endanger our unity. We must seek leaders that encourage unity. And we must live as a congregation that embraces unity around the life-giving word of God. And then think, think about how history might look back and say something like this. The word of God continued to increase among Providence Bible Fellowship. And the number of disciples greatly multiplied in the greater Cincinnati area. And a great many of the Muslims and the Hindus that had immigrated to that area became obedient to the faith. May God do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we are your people. We're thankful that we are not just called to be your people as individuals, but we are called to be part of a body. And that all of us have a role to play in being unified and in both supporting and in engaging in a ministry of the word, whether it's the formal ministry of a pulpit or whether it's the informal ministry of going across the street to my neighbors and sharing the gospel. Father, it's so easy to become fractured and, and not committed to unity because we're selfish and we want our preferences and we want our desires lived out. But Father, you have provided leaders to your church who will set the agenda and the priority by rightly teaching from your word, by praying for the congregation. You have given servants who eagerly and joyfully meet the physical needs, who care for the practical needs of this body. And Father, in all of that, we seek to encourage one another. We seek to encourage unity in Christ and in ministry. Father, we pray that you would do the, the same kind of work that you did in the early church among us, not for our sake, but for the sake of Christ's name in this place. Amen.